Reach new career heights with University of Maryland's Robert H. Smith School of Business. Flexible MBA and MS options. GMAT and GRE not required. Learn more at go.umd.edu slash smithschool. University of Maryland Smith School of Business. Inspired, fearless, unstoppable. From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. To Chamberlain, he's got it. Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike. To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe from way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! LeBron James! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bougay, and with me, I've got a very special guest this week. He's a fellow sports business classroom alum. He also writes his own blog at lrnba.com and he's also a big time Warriors fan. Please welcome Bert Chen. Bert, thanks so much for for coming on. Great to be on, Garrett. Now, uh, we're going to be discussing several topics. First off, we're going to break down your beloved uh, Golden State Warriors and some of the moves they made this offseason and and project uh, what they're going to be like for this upcoming NBA season. And then at the end of the episode, something I'm very excited about doing we're going to, uh, we, we each made our own separate top 10 playoff series of the decade for the 2010s, and we're going to be breaking that down. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but first, Bert, uh, you know, the, the big move, obviously, this offseason was Bob Myers. In that sign-and-trade in which Kevin Durant went to the Brooklyn Nets, he was able to get D'Angelo Russell. Uh, I, myself, uh, wasn't too excited about that, you know, for the fact that Russell's getting paid around $30 million a year, and uh, I don't really love his fit with Steph Curry. Do you see that move as something that he, he envisions Russell and Curry working long-term, or if it's more of just a talent play and maybe moving him possibly as soon as uh, this year's trade deadline? Um, so I guess before I get started, uh, like you mentioned, uh, I am a Warriors fan, so take everything I say with some bias and salts on the side. Um, <laughs> but uh, I will say, I think the offensive fit between, like, with Russell and the Warriors is pretty good. Um, obviously, you're never going to recover fully from losing a player like Kevin Durant, but I think this is about as good as they could do, um, like, salary flexibility-wise. And uh, I... If I had to guess, I would say that I think he played, uh, Russell will play through the season at the very least, given Clay Thompson's injury. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be fascinating to see. He certainly, I agree with you that the, the offensive fit is, is absolutely terrific. He's going to be able to play off the ball. He's got great range on the jumper. Uh, he can also handle the ball as well, so you can... Uh, do what Mike D'Antoni did with Harden and Paul and kind of stagger Curry and, and Russell. Because, you know, without Clay Thompson, without Durant this year, uh, things were looking kind of dicey for the Warriors' offense when Steph actually went to the bench. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I really hope that Kerr does go with the, the stagger. Um, I'm sure 
sometimes Warriors fans have trouble um, following some of Kerr's decision making. Uh, some of you know some of the fans call him Kumbaya Kerr with his propensity to play deep bench players at inopportune times. The strength in numbers philosophy, right? Yeah. yeah, there's definitely some downsides to it. Let's let's put it that way. Um, but like you mentioned, um, if if the Warriors can keep one of Curry or Russell on the floor at all times, um, that'll be a huge boost to. It sh- could be a huge boost to the offense, given that the Warriors have struggled even with all these All Stars on the team. When Curry's off the floor, their their offense is, you know, at best like league average to mediocre. Um, despite having you know the likes of Clay Thompson and Kevin Durant on the floor. Yeah, I certainly think that the offense will be will be boosted by Russell's presence, but the the big concern for me, especially when you talk about the Warriors and them wanting, you know, having the goals of competing for for NBA championships is the defensive fit. And the two of those guys obviously are both point guards. One of them is going to be playing the two on defense. And and obviously even when when Clay was healthy, he essentially would guard the best player in the backcourt on the opposition team, and, and Curry would go on the weaker guy. But now, you know, it, it seems like Curry's going to have to go on the best matchup, and, and Russell's going to have to be hidden, and, and that really doesn't bode well for the defense. Yeah, I mean, I would expect I mean, uh, when when Clay does come back, um, he'll essentially be, I mean, the two and the three, to, and the three to some degree are interchangeable, but Clay will probably start getting assigned to the bigger wing players, um, especially without Iguodala. There's kind of no one to guard that role uh, that Steve Kerr has any track record with. Um, and then between Russell and Curry, uh, I think Curry Curry gets Curry's in a weird spot defensively. I think because. From what I've seen, he's pretty fundamentally sound. Like, he tries hard. Um, it's just his size. is He's just, like, small, even despite his, like, 6'2 height. Like, just, he, gets, he, can, he can get overpowered. Um, and, the one th- and, like, Russell, on the other hand, he's a little bigger than Curry. I think he has, actually has a 6'10 wingspan or so. Um, but he's never been engaged or... Maybe his like feet are too slow. Basically, he's never like been quite as good of a defender as he might look. Possibly, like, his potential might look on paper. Yeah, I, Curry has always been, I think, an underrated defender. Yeah, all the things that that you mentioned, like the the hustle, the effort, the the discipline, and you know, just executing schemes. Like Curry is 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 really solid across the board at that sort of thing. But yeah, just the lack of size is an issue for him. Whereas, yeah, Russell is really the opposite. As you said, 6'10 wingspan, I think he's 6'5 in height. He's got great size uh, for for a point guard, but all of those other things that Curry maybe excels at, he struggles with. Yeah, and I guess we'll see. Uh, we'll see going into this season if, um, I mean, he, he's, he's, he, uh, Russell was in a good system this past year, but he's suffered through some, uh, some dysfunction in his early years with the Lakers, and... Uh, We'll see if uh, he has a different attitude or approach coming to the Warriors, or if uh, that you know defensive his disappointing defense is just something that's uh, going to follow him wherever he goes. Yeah, the the defense is is my biggest concern with this roster. You know, you you talk about losing the likes of, of Kevin Durant and then having to to basically offload Iguodala to make the the Russell maneuver work. 
Uh, and then obviously not having Thompson for a vast majority of the year. I heard various reports on, on the, the Thompson return, and, and obviously we, we can't know until it actually happens, but uh, the Warriors seem very optimistic that Thompson's going to be back in you know the February range. But uh, you know I, I read a report that anybody coming off of an ACL injury, no one has ever returned prior to the 11-month mark which would put his return in May, which would be the, uh, you know, the, the postseason already. So how optimistic are you with, with Clay? You know, he's, he's known for, for being a guy that uh, is, a, is a warrior and, uh, you know, no pun intended, and is, is really good at, uh, you know, he's, he's been consistently healthy throughout his career and also playing through injuries. Are you expecting him to, to get back in that February timetable, or do you expect him to be more like the norm and, and come back around 11 months? Yeah, I mean, if, again, I, if I had to guess, um, I, would go with, I would go with the track record of you know, players who have had previous ACL injuries, and um, I've also heard some, kind of, uh, some discussion with these injuries. I think this is more so for the Achilles, but it might apply for the ACL as well, um, that players, you know, they come back roughly in a year, and then they're not really quite full strength until another year after coming back. Um, but with Clay, I mean, he's he was ready to go in even after, immediately after that ACL injury in the finals. Um, he definitely is willing to play through pain, but I would suspect the Warriors take a longer view with him um hopefully the 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 russell curry draymond trio is enough to keep them in you know playoff contention and then clay can work his way that way clay isn't on uh under any sort of pressure to come back to save the season or anything um as long as he can get ready in time for for some playoff series i think that's that's the goal yeah, as someone that has suffered an ACL injury, the the fact that Clay Thompson was like backpedaling on the court and jogging up and down the locker room, it's just absolute insanity. Like, uh, you know, I, I I couldn't even walk when when I suffered mine. It's it's pretty crazy the the pain tolerance that he's able to deal with. And there's been stories of of previous postseasons where he was playing with severely bruised ankles and and that sort of thing, and just. Yeah, he uh, he's certainly a tough guy, and if anyone's going to come back a little bit sooner than the norm, it would be him. But yeah, you know the if he's not coming back for the vast majority of the regular season, that really makes me question uh, the defense, especially on the on the wing line. Uh, you know, you you've got Alfonso McKinney there, who isn't the greatest of defenders, even though he's got some athleticism and some length. Uh, off the bench, you've got guys like Alec Burks and and Glenn Robinson the third. There's uh, there's really nobody that uh, that opposing team should be scared of attacking out there on the Warriors defensive roster. Yeah, um, yeah. With Mc- I would suspect that uh, going into the season, you know, McKinney is the the nominal starting three, given he's the he's the wing with the most experience left on the roster, um, but. He is definitely one of those guys who looks like a better defender when you don't look closely than he actually is. Um, I still remember Kerr putting McKinney out there on, on Kawhi. Yeah, that did not go well. <laughs> yeah. That was, uh, I don't know what the, you know, that, that was another, you know, slight instance of that, that Kumbaya Kerr uh, mentality. Um, but yeah, we'll see. The, the wing rotation is interesting. Um, 
have some hope that Glenn Robinson can can rebound back to his. Uh, he was a pretty productive player off the bench for the Pacers about I think one. I want to say it was two seasons ago. Um, but then again, you never really want to be in the position where you're relying on Glenn Robinson. Right. Yeah, he's had uh, a myriad of of health issues that have have kind of derailed his career. But yes, at, at his peak, he he was uh, definitely a solid rotation piece. So they'll hope for that. They they really do kind of need that. And you know, I think Alec Burks is going to play some minutes. I think he'll be fine. What about the rookies? You know, they 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 drafted three guys. They got Jordan Poole out of Michigan late in the first round, and then a couple of second round picks. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be pronouncing these correctly, but uh, Alan Smilagich and uh, Eric Paschal, a couple of uh, of big men. Do you, do you imagine any of those guys are going to get some time on on the Warriors this year? Um, I would say I'd expect Paul would get some run. Um, this is assuming none of them get into the kind of Jordan Bill doghouse, but uh, Paul has. He's, he's shown his shooting ability in college for sure, and if there's one thing, ironically enough, that the Warriors were lacking in their rotation pieces, it was shooting, despite the, the great shooting on the top end of their roster. Um, so I think he can find his way into some minutes. Um, Paschal, I think, I'm kind of dubious of. Um, he, he is one of those multi-year players in college. He's a little older, so I could see him working his way into the rotation, but um, he he needs to find kind of his role uh, defensively. Is he going to be a, a four? Is he going to be able to play the small ball five, kind of like Draymond? Um, it's not not super clear yet. And if he if he's, is going to play the four, then you have to imagine that'll uh, affect their spacing pretty negatively. Um, and then Smiley Jeech, all right, I'm probably not even saying his name right, but... Uh, I think he's more of a flyer. I, I really don't expect him to play much, given um, the other the other established bigs, such as Collie uh, Stein and Looney, should get the line share of the center minutes. Not to mention, you know, Draymond will get some burn at five two. Yeah, you know, after the 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 sign and trade to get Russell, uh, Bob Myers and the Warriors were were hard capped, and I was pretty impressed that they were able to to re-sign Looney at the deal that they did. I believe it was three years, fifteen million. And then also to get uh, Cauley Stein, I believe, a little bit over the minimum. Uh, you know, a couple of impressive gets to bolster that center spot. Who do you imagine is going to start out of those two? Uh, I would put my money on Cauley Stein starting. Um, I've seen, it seems like Kerr has a, he, he talks up Looney a lot. Like he's called him a foundational piece. Um, he's talked about wanting to get Looney to shoot threes this year, but traditionally, even when, uh, even when the the starting option has been worse than Looney, uh, Kerr likes to bring him off the bench, and Collie Stein kind of fits the uh, the the traditionally sized lob catching five that Kerr tends to run with the starters. Um, I don't know if it'll be different, um, given you know without Clay Thompson, without uh, Kevin Durant, um, maybe he'll switch things up a little bit. But I think he tends to like to pair these these lob catching fives with Draymond, um, who's who's the the lob thrower in the, in most cases. Yeah, well, and there was always the the idea of especially with with Bell and Looney that he was limiting those guys' minutes so that they would it would dampen their free agent market. 
And uh, I think that actually was successful considering what those two guys got. Uh, but uh, now that Looney's on a three-year deal, maybe uh, you know, maybe Kerr will will be able to or be more willing to to play him bigger minutes. Yeah, it's certainly possible. Um, he's despite Collie Stein's physical profile, um, Looney thus far I think has proven to be far more uh, consistent and uh, you know consistently valuable player. Uh, Collie Stein's pretty volatile. Have um, I've been. I've been seeing some uh, some Kings fans online uh, describe him as you know either either playing out of his mind or just like completely invisible. So yeah, and I guess that's uh, it's a good place to have him then, where you know you can you can just throw Looney out there if uh, if if Cauley Stein is not being productive, and and maybe that will lead to Cauley Stein. Maybe that that competition at center will lead him to be a little bit more consistent and show that upside more often. I'm sure the obviously the Warriors and and Steve Kerr would like to see plenty of that. But yeah, the center position really I think is uh, is the one I'm least concerned about on this entire roster. Obviously, you know the the, the starting point guard and power forward roles are fine as well with with Steph and Draymond. But but one of the other big concerns too is you know again especially if you're starting D'Angelo Russell at the two uh, you know if if Steph Curry goes down with an injury for any length of time or Draymond goes down for any length of time uh, the the depth behind those guys is pretty concerning. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think at this point we the Warriors don't really have a third point guard now that Quinn Cook is gone and Sean Livingston's gone. Um, nominally, it's uh, Kai Bowman, who's a two-way player this year. Uh, in reality, if you know Curry were out for a game, were to get injured in a game, um, I imagine the the backup ball handler would go to Draymond first, and then second, it might be uh, Alec Burks. I think has some ball handling chops. Uh, it scares me a little to say that. <laughs> That's the nicest thing anyone said about Alec Burks. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jordan Poole looked better handling the ball than I expected in summer league, but uh, we'll see how that looks in the NBA. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's definitely dicey when uh, when you talk about those guys missing time. So how how confident are you that this roster and this team is like a for sure playoff team, uh, and and how confident are you that? They could survive a, a couple of week, a couple week absence from the likes of Curry or Green. Um, I would say uh, if you assume, average, like assuming the the key players are healthy, like even without Clay Thompson, like assuming Clay Thompson comes in too late into the season to significantly affect their standings, I would be pretty confident this team uh, would make the playoffs. Uh, I guess you could say that's like injury sliders off if you use 2K, 2K speech. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, if Curry were to go down for any number of weeks, um, Draymond, Draymond's been pretty healthy uh, these last couple of years. But uh, I think I think we could, or I think the Warriors could survive Draymond for for a stretch going down. But if Curry goes down, this is a the the roster gets thin real fast. Yeah, well, and again on the on the injury sliders off scenario, I, I think they're going to need Draymond to bring it 
more consistently during the regular season like he did a few years ago. He's been kind of coasting the last couple of years. And I think, again, with the with the talent downgrade that they've had on the roster this year, I think he's going to have to be, uh, you know, peak Draymond Green pretty much all the time. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the, the last couple months into playoffs, Draymond Green, not the uh, showed up fat to the start of the regular season, Draymond Green. Right. So, so what are your what are your thoughts on on Steph Curry's MVP case for this upcoming season? Obviously, there's going to be a lot of of a uh, you know the the offensive burden is going to be on his shoulders. Do you imagine he's going to have a uh, a season where he might uh, be holding the MVP crown at the end? Um, you know, I think I think he has a better shot than any year with Durant um, on the roster. Like the only scenario where he could have won it uh, in the past three years of the, the Durant Warriors is if Durant were to get injured during the season. Like, just narratively, it just never really works. Um, you kind of saw the same thing with uh, a lot of the other super teams, too, until kind of, same. I'm thinking of, like, the, the LeBron Heat, um, until LeBron got the narrative uh, keys to the franchise, or right. whatever you call it. Um, in terms of Curry this year, I think, um, you know, given... People are questioning if the Warriors will even make the playoffs. Uh, if Curry shows any, le- or if the Warriors show any level of uh, uh, performing beyond expectations, I think he's firm. He'll be firmly in the, the MVP race. Um, again, like I, I always think of the MVP as a very narrative, narrative-based uh, award, despite how much people will use statistics to to make their case. And uh, I could see it. I could see it if you know somehow the Warriors get into the top three, maybe top three seed, uh, you know, early on in the season. I, I I could see that narrative developing. Um, not that I, ex- I would expect the Warriors, you know, given the the injuries and roster limitations. Um, I'm probably thinking more of a six seed, five seed kind of range. But uh, and, and in that case, I can't really see an MVP narrative developing. Uh, Russell Westbrook's kind of the only person who's ever I can think of who's had a, been even close to an MVP without being a top four seed. I'm hoping for a like a Steph performance from Game Three of the NBA Finals over the course of the entire season. You know that was the game where where Clay and Durant were both out, and uh, he ended up scoring 47 points, just put up a ton of shots, was very aggressive. Uh, you know, and and he may need to be that. You know, I know D'Angelo Russell is there to take a little bit of that scoring burden as well. But um, you know, especially again if they stagger him and, and Curry is on the floor without really another great playmaker outside of Draymond. And let's be real, I think Curry sets up Draymond. Uh, you know, to 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 be as successful as he is with his passing. Uh, I would love to see a, a, another Steph season where he you know averages over thirty points a game like he did in twenty sixteen. Yeah, definitely. Um, even if uh, even if the Warriors are just record wise, uh, and you know, an average team, uh, it would be great to see see Curry with the green light again. Um, and you know, from a Warriors fan perspective, uh, you'd all, especially with this current roster, you'd essentially rather Curry shoot any shot than you know ninety percent of this roster. <laughs> Him checking like thirty five foot contested threes is probably better than what a lot of the, these other guys are going to be able to produce. Yeah, and uh, you know, now that the the Warriors are going into a new arena, Oracle Arena is uh is in the past now. 
uh, it'll be it'll be really fascinating to see uh, how good this Warriors team is. And and I think you know regardless of what I and others thought about the D'Angelo Russell fit from a basketball standpoint, I do think just in terms of bringing people. And, and putting them butts in seats in this new arena, I thought Russell was uh, was a good move as far as that's concerned. Yeah, certainly uh, it makes it makes this season a little more interesting. Uh, going into free agency, you know, with all the talk that Durant was leaving, there's there's a lot of talk um, that I saw amongst uh, Warriors fans that next year would be kind of a gap year, um, in in the sense that you're not going all in for the for the championship. Um, let Clay recover fully. Um, Draymond was going to be expiring until he signed his extension, and then at that point, um, you know, depending on how Draymond looks, it would, would have even been possible to to have this roster look completely different. Um, I, I'm supportive of the the kind of re-signing Draymond. I love him as a as a player on the team, but uh, definitely keeping him on. And given that uh, if he had waited until the free agency, he would have been eligible for. I think a full five-year, I want to say 100, 180, some, somewhere in that range, Max. Uh, that definitely made me a little squeamish. Yeah, getting him to sign that extension was a, was a big win. I forgot to even bring that up. There's been so much happening with the Warriors this offseason. But yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, especially just what Draymond, Steph, and Clay have meant to the franchise as a whole, the fact that they're secured now, all three of them are secured for the next three years is is a good sign for the organization, and I still think they're going to be a team that can compete going into the future. Whether that's uh, you know, I I believe if they want to compete at the highest level, they're going to have to eventually trade D'Angelo Russell and maybe get a couple of wings that that fit alongside uh, their their big three uh, better. But but uh, you know, just the just from a nostalgia point of view, I think having those three guys and and moving forward with them locked in. Is, is is nothing but a good thing for the franchise. Now, I, I know we, we were talking right before we were recording this episode that uh, that you're now in the uh, in the Pennsylvania area in Pittsburgh, but are you planning on at any point checking out the new arena this year? Yeah, um, well, I'll have to see how, how my schedule breaks out, but uh, I'm here in, uh, in Pittsburgh for school, so um, we'll definitely be back in the barrier for winter break. Might be able to catch some games around there. Um, I mean, ticket prices are stupid expensive right now, even at before we got the new arena. So we'll see how that shakes out. But uh, yeah, it's the first year. Um, probably worth shelling out a little more that I'd be comfortable with at least once. You know, get get a look at what it what it's, the new arena is looking like. Well, yeah, they gotta they gotta pay back the the billions of dollars they spent on that arena with uh, with upping the ticket prices. Yeah, it's gonna be. It's going to be pretty wild. I've already heard some some early estimates, and it is out of this world how expensive the, some <laughs> tickets are, are going for. Uh, was there anything else you uh, you felt we should we should discuss as far as the Warriors before we move on? No, I think we're good. Uh, I think we hit on everything. You know, we'll uh, certainly be certainly be a more intriguing season than than we kind of thought going into free agency. So uh, we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, you know, they're they're always one of my favorite teams to watch and, and that's gonna be no different and, and I do love the idea of, of Steph and Draymond having to to play at elite levels night in and night out to keep this team afloat. It's gonna be fascinating to watch. Uh and, and again the, the D'Angelo Russell fit as well is gonna be really interesting. So uh moving on now, we uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that uh that we're going to Bert and I are gonna be breaking down our top ten 
playoff series of the decade. So the decade we're referring to is the 2010. So the 2009-10 season being the first season in contention and then uh, ending with this past year, the 2018-19 playoffs. So uh, I thought we would just go year by year and, and I'll break down some, some series that I remember and I thought were were in consideration. And then we'll also uh, both kind of chime in as to which, which of these series actually made our uh, final top 10 list. But uh, starting in the, in the 2010 playoffs, uh, the, the first series that came to mind for me was the, the, the 2010 Eastern Conference semifinals between the Boston Celtics and the, uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Of course, this was a series in which uh, this was the final season uh, for LeBron James in Cleveland uh, in his first stint. And uh, he left on kind of a sour note with uh, one of his most puzzling playoff performances in that Game 5 of that series. Yeah, um, certainly uh, certainly an interesting, or certainly a very impactful series for the, uh, for the larger NBA, given it was his last year in his, in his final stint with Cleveland, uh, or in his first stint with Cleveland, sorry. Uh, him... Uh, in terms of the, I still remember the narratives around this were, were pretty insane. Just in terms of, you know, from like an almost talk radio perspective, um, and then you always have the iconic uh, GIF or however you want to the, the the clip of him uh, taking off his jersey as he goes into the tunnel, and then uh, wouldn't put that back on for uh, for a couple of years. Yeah, um, and yes, you pronounced GIF correctly, um, <laughs> but uh, the. Uh, yeah, that series was fascinating for a number of reasons. You know, there was the the drama about LeBron's elbow and whether or not that was actually hurt. There was, uh, at the end of the, the first round series against uh, Chicago, he actually shot a free throw left-handed. Um, and, uh, you know, the the talk of his, his struggles in the, in the Boston series, a lot of people just used that as their defense, that his elbow was hurt. But, you know, you watch Game 3 of that series, a game in which Cleveland went to Boston and absolutely eviscerated the Celtics. LeBron was hitting jumper after jumper, just doing whatever he wanted. It uh, it makes me, it sort of begs the question as to whether that elbow injury was actually legitimate. Yeah, it's, um, it's always tough because um, you never know. You, can't, you can never really get into their head and know, you know quite how injured these players actually are. Um, and... Looking, it's you know this is the the, the first season it, we're talking about in the decade. It's a long time ago. I was looking back at their stats, and uh, this is kind of the, always the thing with LeBron, right? Even when he has bad series, his his box score stats always look look great. Um, oh yeah, and this is the uh, this is the year they had Shaq as well. I almost forgot about that. Yeah, that was a disaster. <laughs> Mike Brown continuously. Uh, Every game gave Shaq about four or five post touch- touches, and uh, you know he probably did better than this. But my my recollection is he shot about twenty percent on those post opportunities. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was uh, that didn't work out too well. Um, but but yeah, that series was fascinating, and of course it uh, it ended LeBron's first stint with with the Cavaliers and the Celtics. Uh, went on to the Eastern Conference Finals then, which is, that is my, another series that I thought was interesting, was that 2010 Eastern Conference Finals between the Celtics and the Orlando Magic. Of course, the Magic with Dwight Howard absolutely at his peak, and uh, coming off a Finals appearance the previous year, 
Orlando certainly was the favorites heading into the series, but then the Celtics get off to a 3-0 series lead, and then before you know it, uh, the, the, the Magic have won a couple, and they were threatening to be the first team to come back from a 3-0 series deficit and win, but ended up being the Celtics winning in six. Yeah, it's uh, another, you know, going back in time, uh, thinking about this series, uh, just looking at the roster, um, I remember the previous year with the Magic going to the finals, uh, you know, led in part by Hito Turkoglu, who then, I believe, went to the Raptors and disappointed before coming back to the Magic. Um, the, uh, the the starting the lineup for the for the Magic is uh, JJ Redick, Vince Carter, Jameer Nelson, Rashard Lewis. Some uh, some interesting names down the list. Yeah, they were they were a very solid team for a couple of years there, and uh, yeah, Dwight was an absolute beast at that time. But yeah, they weren't able to get past Boston, and and yeah, even the year you mentioned the 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 year previous. The 2009 series was fascinating as well. That was a series the Magic won in seven games, and uh, Glenn Davis hit that game-winning shot uh, in the middle of that series. But yeah, they had a couple of really interesting battles. Another fascinating one from 2010 is the Western Conference Finals between the Lakers and the Phoenix Suns. Uh, That was kind of a back-and-forth series. The Lakers won the first two games in L.A. pretty easily. And then Phoenix rebounded and, and won two in Phoenix to, to not the series at two. And then game five was really the, the decisive game. That was the game in which Ron Artest hit a, uh, a game-winning layup with about .8 seconds left off of a Kobe air ball. Yeah, that, that'll definitely be, that's definitely a play that uh, everyone who was around that time remembers, um, along with uh, the, uh, the other clutch Ron Artest shot that, uh, that happened in the next series in the finals but uh but going back to this series um this was if i remember kind of the context and the narratives around here this was around the time when uh you know this was the tail end of this the the steve nash uh sons and they kind of had a resurgence this year making it all the way to the western conference finals um you know the final year they had uh the the nash amari stoudemire pairing um Again, some, some interesting names on the roster, Jason Richardson, Grant Hill, Jared Dudley. <laughs> yeah, very resurgent uh, season for Grant Hill. You know, he obviously suffered a ton of injuries throughout the 2000s, but he really came back and, you know, he obviously wasn't the anywhere near the player he was with the, the Pistons in the late 90s, but uh, he, he became a really solid role player for that team and also... Uh, Goran Dragic, uh, you know, executed a pretty solid bench unit for that team as well. Yeah, I remember uh, this is uh, this is around the time when Dragic was the uh, the heir apparent to Nash, so to speak. And, yes. Uh, yeah. You had Alvin Gentry that. there as uh, as the head coach. That was a really fun team and a really really fascinating series. Uh, the the 2010 NBA Finals. Uh, this one didn't make my top ten. Uh, maybe it did for you. Uh, obviously, a finals that goes to Game Seven is is pretty epic, as far as that's concerned. But. But for me, it was just too much of a defensive grind. It wasn't really that enjoyable a basketball to watch. And in Game 7, the, the Lakers ended up winning in large part just because they, they killed the Celtics on the board. Of course, Kendrick Perkins, uh, I believe, hurt his knee at the uh, the end of Game 6 and wasn't able to play in Game 7. And, and Pau Gasol just absolutely eviscerated them on the offensive glass. And the Lakers were able to win despite a 6-of-24 shooting performance from Kobe. Yeah, um, so this one, so it sounds like we had uh, 
we had some differing kind of methodologies when we were coming up with this. I uh, I had this in my top ten just because of the I weighted heavily, uh, you know, context, um, kind of what happened uh, with the with, with the lead narrative at the time, and I think, and then giving you more preference for series later in the in the playoffs. So you know, NBA Finals that goes to Game Seven. Uh, some of these box, some of these scores are pretty ugly. Uh, game six, 67 to eighty nine for the Lakers. Um, but I think any finals uh, against any finals that goes to Game Seven is uh, is, is up for consideration. And uh, you know, this is uh, especially with two storied franchises like these. Yeah, no, that that's totally fair. Uh, what uh, what number did you have it in your top ten? So, um, I had this, uh, let me see, I had this number three, okay. um, but again, this is not a watchability standpoint, <laughs> yes. uh, <laughs> yeah, I totally can see that point to you. <laughs> no, yeah, it, uh, it certainly had all of the, the drama, of course, the Lakers and the Celtics being the, the two biggest franchises and, and the most successful franchises in the history of the NBA, and also it was a rematch of the 2008 Finals. Uh, absolutely, I agree that it had a it had all of the 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 newspaper headlines that you would want out of a playoff series, and of course, yes, any any NBA Finals that goes to seven games is is pretty fascinating and interesting, and and deserves recognition. Uh, let's uh, let's move on to the the 2011 playoffs then. Unless you had, and again, if you have any series in any of these years that I'm not mentioning, feel free to chime in. Yeah, no, that was, that was it for me uh, for that year. Okay, so so 2011. I thought was kind of a weaker playoffs uh, in terms of having really great series. Uh, the only one that even was in consideration, and it was on the lower end of that, was the NBA Finals. Of course, the the Heat and the Dallas Mavericks. It ended up being a, a six-game series. The Mavericks win it. Uh, there there were a couple of, of of really tight games in there. Of course, Game Two, the game in which uh, LeBron and Wade, you know, were, were celebrating. I think they were up 15 in the fourth quarter. And they thought it was all over, and then Dirk leads the Mavs back, and and they steal one, and end up taking the series. And this also had a lot of drama as far as LeBron James' first year outside of uh, a Cavaliers uniform, and he was very, uh, very weirdly hesitant throughout the series. Yeah, I mean, certainly this is a this is a finals that um, you know it might be an all time finals for the for the LeBron hater contingent, but. Uh, uh, I was in that camp at the time. Yeah, it was interesting. It's certainly interesting in its own way. It'll certainly be remembered uh, for a long, long time. Um, But uh, I think it was uh, not quite... If you... you, uh, just It was dramatic in the turnaround, you know, the heat being up and then kind of falling apart at the end of the series. But uh, I don't don't think this is quite... this This wasn't in consideration for me either. Now, were there any uh, were there any other series from from that postseason that uh, that near made your list or nearly made your list? Um, I, this didn't make my list, but I did consider the the OKC uh, Memphis second round series that went to seven. Um, just you know, pitting kind of the uh, the the Durant Westbrook in their uh, you know, actually they still had Harden at this point, I, I believe. Uh, you know that trio versus the grit and grind. I guess the reason I didn't uh, I didn't mention this is because I actually have a different year of a series that uh, that I yeah, that I put in instead. 
but but yeah, there was that 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 2011 matchup between the Thunder and the Grizzlies had a what I believe was a three overtime game. I think Grievous Vasquez hit a crazy shot to tie the game at one point, uh, and uh, the the Thunder ended up surviving. Um, but but yeah, the the Grizzlies and Thunder had the Grizzlies in particular had a ton of really fun series to watch throughout this decade. Uh, they uh, they certainly um, you know were were on my list on a couple of occasions. Uh, but yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up. Now, as far as uh, the the 2012 season, uh, I had a, a couple of a couple of series. The the first round matchup between the Clippers and the Memphis Grizzlies actually made my top ten. I had that as number eight, and in large part because game one of that series was one of those games that I just my my jaw was you know on the floor. It was absolutely sensational. The Grizzlies won the first quarter, I believe, by 18 points, and were up 21 heading into the fourth quarter. And then Chris Paul and Nick Young decide to just go absolutely crazy. Young hit about three consecutive threes on on three straight possessions. And uh, the Clippers come all the way back, and uh, I believe it's still one of the top two or three all-time postseason comebacks in in playoff history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly... uh... You know, the Clippers, for all the Lob City Clippers, for all the the disappointment it ended up being, uh, they had a bunch of fun early round series. Um, you know, there's this one. There's one we'll probably talk about later where uh, they faced the Spurs and went to seven. Um, but uh, yeah, this this is one of the early Clipper teams. I'm um, looking at the roster again. Uh, you know, the, you have you have Mo Williams on the team, Karan Butler. Uh, this was back before DeAndre Jordan was. Uh, was part, was uh, considered you know core to that team. Uh, so, uh, they had a lot of in the. Uh, I always enjoyed watching the Blakers and uh, Zach Randolph matchup. Yes, those two absolutely went at it, and uh, I think people forget just how good Zach Randolph was at his peak. He was, I mean, I think he was uh, the the Grizzlies' best player there for a few years, and 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 their go to guy on the offensive end of the floor because this was really before. Mark Gasol had hit any sort of an offensive peak. He was more just a defensive role player as well. And and Conley also, I think, in, in those early years, wasn't nearly as good offensively. He's gotten better and better each year, and now he's considered an offensive force. But but back then, he, he really was more of a defensive piece. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, I think Conley, Conley gets overlooked a lot, and you the tendency to kind of just think he's been the same, you know, for so many years because he's been with the Grizzlies kind of playing with the same group. But he's definitely uh, grown a lot since since those early two thousand or twenty ten series. Uh, another a couple of series in in, in twenty twelve the the twenty twelve Eastern Conference Finals between the Miami Heat and the Boston Celtics. Of course, this was uh, you know uh, another series. LeBron going against the Celtics. He had lost to the Celtics a couple of years. You know, obviously we already mentioned the twenty ten series. Also lost to the Celtics in 2008 as well in a seven-game battle. Uh, so obviously some animosity going both ways. The Heat looked like they had the series under, you know, in control in the early going. But then Boston comes back, takes a 3-2 series lead. Paul Pierce hits a, a dagger three at the end of game five and starts talking trash to, to the Heat players. But then LeBron in Game 6, one of the greatest performances in his career, uh, absolutely uh, put the heat on his back and, and 
essentially was saying we're not going to lose this at all. And, and it was a uh, performance on the road as well, which made it all the more impressive. Yeah, so, uh, you know, keeping my the criteria I talked about earlier in mind, this one uh, made my top ten. I had this number five. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll, definitely this was, you know, before the, the 2016 finals, This I think this was the most iconic um, series for, Le, for LeBron um, in, in Miami. Or, that didn't quite make sense, but this is, a, this is definitely up there with his Game 7 performance uh, against the Warriors. Uh, 45, 15, and 5. Um, you know, you have that, again, I'm thinking of uh, kind of the NBA culture. You have the, everyone has seen the, the picture of LeBron kind of, uh, you know, staring down uh, at that. I can't really describe it, but I know you know the one I'm talking about. Yes, yeah, he just yeah. Uh, um, just looks real cold-blooded, and yeah, he's, yeah. he's not messing around. Yeah, you, you rarely see that. He's often... More, he's, he often more has a, a jovial look on his face. He's, uh, you know, kind of in the in the Dwight Howard mold in terms of he looks like he's enjoying himself most of the time. But, but yeah, there the the two times I can think of uh, of LeBron very serious faces uh, when when Lance Stevenson blew in his ear in the <laughs> the Heat Pacers series, and then uh, yes, in in the 2012 Eastern Conference Finals Game Six. Uh, so, so I I had that in consideration, but it didn't make my top ten. Uh, a series that did make my top ten, though, out of the same postseason was the 2012 Western Conference Finals between the Oklahoma City Thunder and the San Antonio Spurs. This absolutely was one of the funnest series to watch. Uh, you know, you had the San Antonio Spurs coming into the series. I believe they had won 18 consecutive games, including sweeping in the first two rounds. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they take the first two games of the series pretty easily. Uh, but then Oklahoma City comes roaring back. And uh, in in game four, I, uh, this was so fascinating. You know, Greg Popovich and the Spurs do such a good job of if you get if you get beat one way, you, you try to make the team go to a plan B. You know, game three, I believe Durant and Westbrook just went nuts and, and really carried the Thunder's offense. So in game four... Uh, Popovich has his team really double Durant and Westbrook every opportunity they can and, and force the other guys to beat them. And in that game four, Kendrick Perkins and Serge Ibaka combined to go 18 of 20 in a uh, in a tight Thunder win. And that really was kind of the, the decisive game that, that continued the momentum for the Thunder, and they ended up winning it in six. Yeah, this was... Uh, this was... The, the the James Harden you know coming out party before before uh, Houston so to speak uh, I remember he had a disappointing finals against the Heat but uh, this was where he uh, he really looked the part of if you were a James Harden believer uh, before Houston this is the this is the series that you would point to yeah he was he was very big off the bench and uh, hitting big shot after big shot again. Really close, uh, close matchups throughout that series. Again, that was my number six on my list. Uh, was there anything else from from the 2012 postseason? No, nothing for me. All right, so let's move on now to uh, the the 2013 season, and and uh, the first one I'll bring up is the the 2013 Eastern Conference first round matchup between the Chicago Bulls and the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, this was a, a series and in which it was really tight. It went seven games, and it included a triple overtime game in which the Chicago Bulls won in game four, in which Nate Robinson went uh, absolutely bonkers. 
Yeah, no, definitely remember that. Um, this is the series, you know, there's no Derrick Rose. Um, you got the, the Carlos Boozer, Nate Robinson, Jimmy Butler, um, the, Bull, the, the Bizarro Bulls. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you got... Uh, you got the oh, this is the this is the the core four Brooklyn Nets. You got uh, Darren Williams, Brook Lopez, Joe Johnson, Gerald Wallace. Um, yes, this is a, it's a definitely a fun series. I remember I remember Nate Robinson. Um, it's kind of it's probably the peak of his career aside from the dunk contest. And uh, unfortunately, neither of these teams were serious, you know, uh, contenders for li- deeper in the playoffs. But definitely one of the funnest first round series around. Yeah, and, and again, that's why it, it was in consideration, but didn't make my list just because, as you said, it uh, you know the the winner of that series uh, lost in the in the following round, so it wasn't really a uh, yeah, it didn't really have much consequence. But uh, another series in in 2013 that I thought was uh, was worth mentioning was the uh, the 2013 Western Conference semifinals between the San Antonio Spurs and the Golden State Warriors. The Warriors in round one of that year dispatched the Denver Nuggets in, in what was an upset at the time in, in six games. And uh, this was really the coming out party for Steph Curry. This was the first time you got to see, oh man, this guy is special. Uh, and and game one of that series, it looked like the Warriors were going to steal one on the road, uh, but the Spurs make this crazy comeback. I think Manu Ginobili got a key steal down the stretch uh, to, to help the Spurs pull it out in overtime, but uh, that was a really, really fun series and a lot more competitive on the Warriors' half than a lot of people give them credit for. Yeah, this was, uh, you know, the, the first-round series, you know, people, I remember that year, uh, Denver Denver had a great year, but uh, people were kind of writing them off just because they were coming off, uh, this was the post-Mellow Nuggets. Um, well, and Gallinari was, was hurt yeah. for that first-round series, which, which definitely... Uh, hurt the, the the Nuggets chances yeah yeah definitely um and then you know the Warriors pull a pull a 3-6 upset um go to the next round against the Spurs um you know there's obviously you know butterfly effects you have to consider but uh the Warriors lost game one by two points as you mentioned uh, I believe Manu Ginobili hit a game winning hit the game winning shot um I remember I believe Clay Thompson fouled out that game and they had to put in Ken Bazemore made a key layup down the stretch um, i remember that yes yeah yeah and then uh you know the warriors turn around win game two so if you if you don't consider you know the butterfly effect side of this the warriors could have been up 2-0 on uh, on the team that made the nba finals yeah that was peak like kent Bazemore is the best cheerleader in the nba phase um that was uh yeah that was that was really fun and yeah that warriors team was a fun up-and-coming group uh, and and the, uh, as I mentioned, that was that was kind of Steph's coming out party. But of course, that Spurs team nearly went on to to win the finals. Uh, the another series, of course, that year the Eastern Conference Finals, the Miami Heat versus the Indiana Pacers. That series went seven games. Game one being that uh, that game in which LeBron James caught the ball at the free throw line, was able to drive past Paul George and finish at the buzzer. And uh, you know Frank Vogel, the Pacers coach at the time. Did, uh, decided to not have Roy Hibbert out there on that final possession. Hibbert was one of the best rim protectors in the league, and uh, you know he, Vogel got criticized a lot for that. But uh, you know that went back and forth. The Pacers came back after that tough game one defeat and won game two. Uh, had uh, three or four games that were real close. A real fun, interesting series. 
Yeah, so so this one, um, I, I had this in my top 10 at, uh, let me see, I had this at number 8. Um, to some degree, I think my, my recollection of this is blending with all the other Miami-Indiana series, but, uh, you know, this, you know, Obviously, the series went to seven. Um, Roy Hibbert at the time averaged an efficient twenty-two and ten in this series um, yeah. before he fell off a cliff. This is when peak verticality and is a is a weird time, my friend. Yes, uh, yeah. The the Heat Pacers played in in twenty twelve, twenty thirteen, and twenty fourteen, and and I agree. I think the twenty thirteen matchup was was easily the best series of them all. The, the reason I didn't have it quite in my top 10 is is Game 7 ended up being a bit of a blowout. The Heat kind of just trapped the, the Pacers all over the place, and, and Vogel was quoted as saying after the game that we tried to get the ball on the block to Hibbert and West, but they, they just wouldn't allow it. They were too fast. <laughs> yeah, this was, uh, as you kind of alluded to, this was um, early, this is where you kind of saw the early... Uh, tension between, you know, have small ball to the degree the Miami Heat played it versus uh, having that huge front line of David West and Roy Hibbert. Right. Now, uh, the the series after that for the Heat was the NBA Finals, and this is the number one series on my list, uh, the 2013 NBA Finals between the Miami Heat and the San Antonio Spurs. Absolutely fantastic stuff. You had the really tight game one in which Tony Parker hit that leaning shot off the glass to to essentially ice that game one. Uh, And then it was just back and forth throughout the rest of the series. And then game six, Tim Duncan has this out-of-body experience, a a turn-back-the-clock sort of performance. He puts up 25 points in the first half. The Spurs, uh, off of a a Tony Parker step-back three over LeBron, were up. Uh, I believe five with about 29 seconds to go in the ball game. But uh, basically, if if you're listening to this podcast and you follow the NBA, you know the rest. Uh, Ray Allen hitting that crazy corner three to tie the game, and then the Heat ended up winning it in overtime. And then, you know, Game 7, even after the craziness of Game 6, Game 7 was a game for the ages. Yeah, for sure. Um, I had this series number two on my list. Um for all the reasons you've mentioned, uh, the only thing I'll add, I believe I'm not getting my Miami series mixed up, but this is also the series where, uh, was it in Game 6 where Tim Duncan had that missed wide-open layup that could have... Uh, that was in Game skipped. 7. Game 7, right, okay. Yeah, he. Uh, I believe they were they were down 2 with uh, with just like uh, under 2 minutes left, and yeah, he got... Um, a mismatch with Shane Battier guarding him, and he had, yep, about a two- or three-footer that he hit off the back of the rim. Uh, yeah, that was... Uh, and he had a tip-in opportunity even after that, but he couldn't hit that either. Um, yeah, that's... I think uh, when Tim Duncan looks back at his career, that'll be one of those moments that he he just says, how did I miss that shot, you know? Yeah, um, but, yeah it's, uh, it's almost the... Uh, yeah, there's Patrick Ewing moment... Um, with the uh, against what was it against the Pacers way back? Yes, where he had that finger roll that rattled out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the the other thing I love about this series is that you know the the best players for the most part played extremely well. LeBron, uh, you know, especially in that game seven, had a uh, I think a thirty seven point performance, was knocking down jump shots in the in the Spurs towards the end of that ball game, just resigned to double-teaming him and getting the ball out of his hands. But he was phenomenal. Even though he 
he struggled with his jump shot early on in the series. You know, his his game seven performance, I think, makes up for that. And Tim Duncan was was absolutely terrific. And Kawhi Leonard, that was really his first coming out party as as being a force and a guy that really gave LeBron fits at times. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I remember pretty distinctly this series was the one where um, you know, Greg Popovich kind of just went um, full, I don't know, full Tony Allen? I don't know if that's, if that's the right phrase, but uh, I remember them going under, you know, pick and roll ball screens, like, under in the paint. Like, you'd set a screen at the free, the Heat would set a screen at the free throw line, and they'd go under on it, just hoping LeBron and Wade would take any jumpers they could. Right, um, you know that was the that was the strategy they used going back to the 2007 NBA Finals when it was really evident that LeBron struggled with the jump shot, and uh, that worked tremendously for them then. And uh, I think it almost just caught LeBron and Wade off guard, and they were kind of shocked by that strategy uh, because both of them had worked immensely on their on their jump shot and and felt like most teams respected them with their jumper. Uh, so to see teams just like act like there were Jean Rondo out there was 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 quite the surprise. Yeah, and uh, I'm always fascinated to you know how how those star players are making the decision because on one hand you want to shoot it to to make them pay, but on the other hand if you just you know you take the easy early clock mid range jumper or whatever they're giving you, you're playing right into their strategy. Yeah, it was fascinating, that back and forth. And, and even a lot of the role players, you know, Shane Batty, I think, went 7-for-7 uh, seven seven from 3 in Game 7. That was another huge key of how the, the Heat were able to pull off Game 7. Uh, and then, you know, you had various moments, of, or of course, Danny Green, you know, at the time had set an NBA record for most three-pointers made. Really, really awesome series all around, and, and, and really gorgeous basketball as well, and, and two fantastic teams going at it uh moving on now unless did you have any other uh, t- 2013 series to mention no you, you got them all all right let's move on to, to 2014 now and this i believe the, the 2014 postseason was the greatest first round in the history of the nba playoffs you had the eastern conference first round between the brooklyn nets and the toronto raptors that went seven games a series in which Paul Pierce blocked Kyle Lowry in the closing moments of that Game 7. Uh, then you also had in the Western Conference, you had the Los Angeles Clippers versus the Golden State Warriors. That series went 7. Four games were within 5 points, including uh, that that uh, really fun Game 7. You had the, the first-round series between the Portland Trailblazers and the Houston Rockets, in which Damian Lillard hit the... Uh, the games and series clinching shot, uh, you know, one of now two epic shots that he's hit in his career. And uh, the, the final first-round series to mention, again, four just absolutely fantastic first-round series out of the eight. Uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder versus the Memphis Grizzlies. This was uh, number nine on my list. You had four very tight games in a seven-game series. Absolutely fantastic stuff, and, and again, if not the greatest first round series of all time, one of one of the greatest uh, first rounds in, in the history of the NBA. Definitely, and uh, I think you didn't even mention the uh, the Spurs Mavericks, right? That that series also went seven. Right. Uh, that, that was the team that pushed the Spurs the furthest in the entire playoffs. Yeah, and and Vince Carter, I believe, hit a buzzer beater in one of those games as well to extend that series. Um, yeah, that was that was another one though where it. 
it, to me, it always felt like the Spurs were going to win that, even though Dallas kept hanging in there. Uh, I believe that was a, that was either a 1-8 or 2-7 series, but, but certainly you're right that that deserves mentioning because it went seven games. But um, I don't know, in the back of my mind, I always felt like the Spurs still had it. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes you do get that feeling, um, despite you know the, the record not being uh, not matching up with expectations. The only other thing I'll say about that uh, that first round is that um, I still I think uh, this was this was the start of uh, if you remember going back to that Warriors Clippers series where uh, where Curry should have gotten I, I mean again bias but should have gotten fouled on that. Uh, shot he took to, to, I believe, win the game, or at least push it to overtime. Uh, Chris Paul fouled him, I think, twice on it on a, on a go-ahead three. Uh, I want to say it was game four, but I can't, I can't remember at this point. I do remember that, yes. Yeah. It's, uh, um, yes, I, I can tell you have a very vivid memory for specifically some of those Warriors series from this <laughs> decade. Uh, but, but, yes, I do remember that. That, uh, that is a really good point, and, yeah, that... Um, uh, that was really the coming out party for Draymond Green as well. He uh, he played significant minutes and, and looked good at times. Yeah, he he always relished playing against Blake Griffin. Um, and then you know coming off of this this first round loss, uh, the next season was when the, the the real you know the the championship Warriors really took off and they dominated the Chris Paul Clippers for uh, for a couple consecutive years. Yeah. Now, uh, the the one other series in in 2014 that I thought was worth mentioning was that uh, you know the 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 Clippers ended up getting past the Warriors in round one and then faced off against the Thunder in round two. Um, you know that was a series in which both teams had had crazy comebacks. I think there was one Clippers win in which Darren Collison absolutely lit it up and and brought the Clippers de- back from from a huge deficit. And then there was also that crucial Game 5 with the series tied at 2, uh, and the Clippers seemed to have the game in control, and Chris Paul with a couple of turnovers in a very in very uncharacteristic Chris Paul fashion uh, that, that cost the Clippers that game and eventually the series. Yes, uh, this is one of the, I believe this is one of the few matchups between the, uh, the Thunder and the Clippers in, the, in this entire era, but... Uh... The only dig I'll put, I'll say there is uh, the turnovers might have been uncharacteristic, uncharacteristic for Chris Paul, but not the uh, losing in the second round. <laughs> yes. No, uh, I, I forgot to mention too that uh, the the first round series between the Thunder and Grizzlies in 2014 that made my list at number nine, so just snuck in there. But uh, was there anything else in in 2014 uh, that you had, Bert? No. I think uh, the rest of the playoffs were a little were less exciting than the first round, uh, especially that finals. All right, so uh, moving on to 2015 now, and uh, the first one I'll mention is my number five on my list, which is the first round series between the Los Angeles Clippers and the San Antonio Spurs, a series in which it went seven games, and Chris Paul hit the series winner over the outstretched hands of uh, of Tim Duncan. And uh, it, it was absolutely fantastic throughout. Really close games. Blake Griffin, arguably the, the greatest postseason series of his entire career. Uh, but uh, you also had, I think that was also the last great series that Tim Duncan played as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was, um, this was it, I remember at the time, this felt like the, the, this was the year for the Clippers. You know, 
getting over the Spurs, the uh, the winners and the, the previous NBA champions in the first round. Um, it's just like this, it seemed like this is the year. You know, Chris Paul finally. I mean, narratively, he's always he's always been pretty good, in, even in the series he's lost. But uh, he seemingly got over the hump, um, and then. Uh, I didn't, this one didn't make my final top ten, but uh, the, the next series uh, definitely did. Okay, interesting. So, um, yeah, you, the, the series you're referring to, which definitely made my honorable mentions, is the, the Western Conference semifinals between the, the Houston Rockets and the Clippers. Of course, the, uh, the, the most notable moment is Game 6, in which the Clippers were up significantly in the fourth quarter and, and choked away the lead. Uh, the, I remember a, a bunch of Blake Griffin, about five to ten footers that were wide open that he just kept back, hitting off the back of the rim. And then Josh Smith and Corey Brewer decided that they were going to be good three-point shooters uh, for, for a quarter and absolutely lit the Clippers up. And uh, yeah, the, the Rockets ended up winning that series in seven. But it's it's even the more crazy because the, the Rockets had essentially benched James Harden in that game six and, and, and re- had really conceded the series until Josh Smith and, and Brewer got hot. Yeah, um, so I had this series number seven in my top ten. Um, you know, if there, was, if there was one series, you know, looking back on the totality of the Lob City Clippers that sums up um, the Clippers, I think it was this series. Um and then, you know, on the Houston side, uh, you know, the book's still open for James Harden, but this was, uh, this was one of the, this was a uh, kind of an iconic moment for him in the negative, uh, you know, his, his team essentially giving up um, and then making the comeback with him on the bench. Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a really weird series. It's, uh, you know, looking back again as a neutral observer of that series, this, this to me very much feels like one of those rare series where the better team did not advance. Uh, and, and, you know, typically in, in a seven-game series, that's, that's the point of, of playing seven games is that typically the, the better team is going to advance when you, when you get that many games. But when you talk about just the craziness of, of what, that, what that game six and, and how that transpired and how a couple of, of role players who are, you know, they are bad shooters. Neither of those guys are, are good three-point shooters, and they just absolutely caught fire. It just felt like one of those random events that uh, that flipped the, the course of a series and, and really did, for the most part, end the Lob City era. Yeah, um, and, uh, you know, the Clippers still had a chance going into Game 7, but it felt like, you know, just with the way the, the Game 6 ended up shaking out, they kind of kind of broke their spear and they just, they just gave in the end. Well, and, and, you know, I don't think people give enough credit to the idea of, of how grueling it is to play back-to-back seven-game series. You know, like we mentioned, the, the first-round series against the Spurs. The reason, you know, my, a lot of people might say, oh, you're crazy for having a first round series between the Clippers and Spurs as your number five series of the decade. But really I looked at that as that was the second and third best team in the conference going at it in round one. That was the year where I think the Spurs finished as the sixth seed despite winning 56 games. It was absolutely crazy. People forget how exhausting or don't realize how exhausting back-to-back seven game series are. And, and again, the Clippers having that, that seven game matchup against the Spurs and then having to go and, and play a seven-game series against the Rockets. And, yeah, they looked absolutely ex- exhausted in Game 7 against Houston. 
you know, you, you talk about, we'll, we'll get to this a little bit later, but even the, the 2016 Warriors going through a grueling seven-game series in the Western Conference Finals, I don't think people factor that in enough into what happened and what transpired in the in the NBA Finals in the series after. Yeah, definitely. Um, you kind of have a tendency to look at each, each series in isolation, but um, as any team that uh, has been deep in the playoffs multiple years will tell you uh, the, the cumulative wear on you definitely uh, definitely gets, uh, it's not nothing and it definitely plays a factor Now another series that I thought was fascinating was the other the other Western Conference semifinal in 2015 between the Warriors and the Memphis Grizzlies, this was a series in which Memphis really uh, stymied the Warriors offense for good chunks, the Grizzlies were up two games to one and uh, Tony Allen seemed to just absolutely be in the heads of both Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. Uh, both of those guys, I think, at various times were just losing the basketball because they were worried Tony Allen was going to strip them or whatever. Uh, and, you know, M- Marcus Gasol was at the peak of his defensive powers as well, limiting anything around the basket. So the Warriors were really struggling, but they were able to make, and Steve Kerr was able to make that key defensive adjustment and uh, putting Andrew Bogan on Tony Allen. Yeah, this is. Um, I mean, at one point the the Warriors or the Grizzlies took a two one lead, and uh, you know, as a war, I can attest to this personally. We were definitely worried. Uh, this is the first year the Warriors, you know, were the Warriors at the time, but we weren't sure at the time, uh, you know, just how far they would go. And uh, this is uh, this is for me. I think I used the term earlier, but uh, this is where. Kerr really brought the the Tony Allening, the the ignoring the player who can't shoot um, strategy. I'm sure people have used it, you know, in the past, but this is the first time I remember where it became common a common phrase. Right, and and yeah, that really seemed to to swing the series. And again, as great of a defensive team as that Grizzlies group were, you know, they they did struggle a little bit offensively. And yeah, when when they made that adjustment and put Bogut on Allen, it uh, it. It uh, again, no pun intended, because we're talking about the grit and grind Grizzlies. But it it, it grinded the 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 Grizzlies offense to a halt. Uh, another series in in 2015 that I thought was fascinating was the the Eastern Conference semifinals between the the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Chicago Bulls. This of course had that uh, Game Four buzzer beater by LeBron that sort of uh, stemmed the tide and, and helped the Cavs get through it. But, you know, they were dealing with injuries to both Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love. Jimmy Butler was at the peak of his defensive powers and gave LeBron some issues. And uh, that was a lot tighter of a series than most people remember. Yeah, certainly. Um, this was, uh, I remember there being at the time, or at the time, there was a feeling that, uh, you know, this, especially with the, the Bulls game one win, um, that, you know, this, this Cavs team, had been a bit inconsistent. You know, this is the first uh, first LeBron in round two Cleveland year. Um, they made that uh, they made that trade deadline move to bring in Timofey Mozgov among others. Um, it was a it was an interesting year, and uh, this uh, the series, despite going six, it was one of the tighter six game series um, I can remember. Yeah, and then that uh, that helped propel the Cavs to the. Uh... Uh, Eastern Conference Finals, and uh, they dispatched the Hawks then, and then advanced to the Finals, which the Finals was a pretty interesting series as well. 
you know, that was again between the Warriors and the Cavs. The first game, the Cavaliers had a healthy Kyrie Irving, and it was a it was a grinded out defensive affair. The Warriors ended up winning in overtime. But then once Kyrie goes down, the Cavs commit to a very defensive approach and strategy and actually win games two and three. Uh, and then game four, Kerr making another key adjustment like he did in the Memphis series. He uh, ends up putting Andre Iguodala into the starting lineup and uh, basically creating uh, the death lineup, and uh, that helped get the Warriors through. And and even despite that, though, you know, games five and six, I think, are also closer than most people remember, and, and Curry played really well down the stretch of that series. Yeah, there's there's a ton. You know, this didn't make my list, but there's a ton you could talk about this series. Um, first first thing is uh, I was personally at game one of that series, the, the overtime game that Kyrie got hurt in. Interesting. I was, uh, I was at game four in Cleveland. Wow. Okay. So uh, we both have some personal attachment to this, but um, yeah, there's a, a ton. You, you you hit on some of the big points already. Um, the only other things I'll add is uh, I remember me me and my friend at the time we uh, we were talking about you know after Kyrie went down the the Cavs essentially went into caveman basketball, um, pounding the rock, working down the shot clock. LeBron was shooting an inefficient percentage, but um, it's almost kind of a like a, a NFL team with you know with no quarterback who is just trying to run the ball every play, um, and then I remember uh, at some point you know the, the you know there was the whole Delavadova versus Curry matchup. Um, there was uh, at one point you know the Warriors' offense was struggling and Curry inserted David Lee into the the lineup, um, who had previously been kind of out of the rotation. And then David Lee managed to create some key buckets down the stretch out of the pick and roll. Yeah, Lee was was crucial in that game four I mentioned. I I was at he was uh, he was a big factor, especially in the second half of that game. And of course, Andre Iguodala taking the uh, the Finals MVP, even though I thought it was uh, should have gone to Curry. And I think people overreacted to Curry's one poor performance, and everyone was calling Delavadova the the Curry stopper because of one game. Uh, I thought that was a bit much, but but yeah, that series was was really fascinating. I also think it's interesting, you know, a lot of people look at, oh, well, the Cavs would have won with, you know, if if Kyrie stayed healthy. Well, you know, he he was healthy in that game one and and played brilliantly, and they still lost. And the Cavs got two wins in large part because they went away from how they were playing with Kyrie. So I have a hard time believing in in that theory, but um, but certainly, uh, you know. Uh, Cleveland fans will will believe that and and believe that until they are uh, in their graves. But uh, moving on to uh, to 2016, I I believe this is one of the greatest postseasons we've ever seen or I've ever seen at least. Uh, the uh, the the first series that I'll bring up and it's my number seven on my list is the 2016 Western Conference Semifinals between the Oklahoma City Thunder and the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, this was a series in which the Spurs had won. You know, uh, 67 games, I believe. They were a, a brilliant basketball team led by Kawhi Leonard in, in his first real prime season where he was absolutely a superstar. They still had the likes of LaMarcus Aldridge, and this was Tim Duncan's final year. Uh, but uh, in this series, LaMarcus Aldridge put up 38 and 41 points in the first two games. In game one, the Spurs absolutely annihilated the Thunder. And then in Game 2, the Thunder come back and win a really tight game. Uh, there was this whole uh, 
frantic sequence at the end of game two where the ball hit the rim and then was bouncing on the floor and then the time just ran out. Uh, it was absolutely crazy, but it was also just really fun from a strategic standpoint. You know, you had Kawhi Leonard guarding either Durant or Westbrook, and it seemed like he slowed one of those two down, but the problem is they had two and the other guy just went off. Yeah, it's, uh, I would agree with you. This is one of the most dramatic uh, postseasons in recent memory, certainly in the decade period we're talking about. Um, you know, this is uh, you have a lot of the, the league's top talent in this series, uh, from Durant to Westbrook. You know, the tail end of the, the Spurs' big three, and then Lamarcus Aldridge and Kawhi Leonard. This is a uh, they. Uh, you know, I think this series gets overshadowed by the the Western Conference Finals and the Finals, but it's certainly one uh, certainly worth mentioning. Yeah, and the the series you you just. Uh mentioned the the conference finals between the Warriors and the Thunder. This is my number two on my list. And, uh, of course, there's there's just so much to talk about with this series. Of course, there's the game one that was a really tight affair, that the Thunder felt like they stole one on the road. And then game two, the Warriors win pretty easily. But then you go to Oklahoma City, and the Thunder just absolutely run the Warriors off the floor. The transition play of Russell Westbrook, the all-around brilliance, of Kevin Durant and the defensive length and athleticism of Robertson and Steven Adams and Serge Ibaka just overwhelmed Golden State. And uh, it looked like they were down and out. It looked like their 73-win season was going to be done and dusted. But then they somehow managed to turn around, win a close Game 5, and then Game 6, arguably one of the greatest playoff games that I have ever seen. Clay Thompson absolutely goes nuts, sets an NBA record with 11 three-pointers. And uh, despite that, you know, despite his brilliance, that was still a back-and-forth ball game. And uh, if it wasn't for a, a pretty poor performance in the first half from Kevin Durant, it may not have mattered. Yeah, so I had this series uh, number four in my top ten. Um, you know, for all the reasons you've mentioned so far, uh, I remember at the time, you know, the the, the Thunder's ridiculous length. Um, the one thing that'll always stick out to me is, uh, you know, Sean Livingston, the player who's known for, you know, having the size advantage and hitting his turnaround jumper. This is the first series I can remember where, like, he had no one to post up. Um, right. You know, <laughs> yeah, even Dion Waiters off the bench was was a pretty good post defender. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, he was going up against the likes of Waiters and Russell Westbrook, and he... He didn't really have much of an advantage in the post against those guys. Um, just the general Thunder wingspan and, and athleticism really stymied the Warriors. Um, a lot of switching going on, and then uh, anchored by Stephen Adams down low. But uh, you know, for th- this is definitely a high drama series. Uh, one of the two three-one uh, three-one comebacks this playoffs. And. You know, you had all of the drama of Draymond Green kneeing Stephen Adams on multiple <laughs> occasions, and Adams coming away with bruised testicles, which is the most painful thing I think I've ever heard someone go through. But uh, Game 7 was also a, a brilliant game as well. It was uh, a pretty competitive affair. You know, it, similar to the 2013 Finals, where Game 6 is all anyone ever talks about, Game 7 was still brilliant. Yeah, it was... Um... You know, that, that's the thing with all these iconic Game 6s is, you know, you still have the shot. You still have a shot in the end. And, uh, you know, the Thunder kept it close. It was a, it was an exciting affair until the third quarter Warriors kind of reared their heads. And, uh, 
you know, they would, uh, they would go on to what the series that ended up being my number one series, despite how much it pains me to, to put it there in the NBA Finals. Yes, so, yes, the, the NBA Finals that year was between the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors. You say it's your number one. It's my number three, and uh, it absolutely was, uh, was fascinating. The Cavs, again, coming down from uh, coming back from being down three games to one. Of course, there was the drama of Draymond Green hitting LeBron in the groin and then being suspended for a very crucial game five. And again, you know, people say, well, you know, the Warriors still had games six and seven with Draymond to to uh, beat the Cavs and win the series. But, you know, momentum is, uh, I think, plays a pretty big factor in sports. And game five at home after taking or stealing one on the road to take a 3-1 series lead I think oftentimes that's where teams have to finish it out and the Warriors without Draymond didn't have much of a chance yeah this is um I mean I still have some strong feelings for this series but uh it's certainly certainly high drama um you know you have the dimension of it being the the matchup from the previous year the 73 wins um the reverse 3-1 um you have uh you have Iguodala, uh, I think. This is the first year I remember him looking like an old man, kind of. Uh, his back was pretty killing him. Um, Andrew Bowie goes down crucially at the end of the series. You have, um, you know, obviously LeBron and Kyrie's 40-point games uh, to close out the series. Um, the one thing that I always remember, and this isn't... Um, this isn't like the, the most iconic part, but I remember uh, uh, LeBron James um, coming down the court on defense and just slide tackling Steph Curry with no foul and stealing the ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was uh, there is there is a lot of, of crazy things that happened. You know, uh, you know another thing that I think uh, didn't go in the Warriors' favor was Harrison Barnes. I think he was. Uh, he shot around 50% in the first four games and then absolutely went in the worst slump of his career for games five through seven. You already mentioned Andrew Bogut's injury. I believe that was in uh, in game five. But uh, that played a key role, I believe, in game seven when Kerr utilized Festus Azili. And uh, in the closing moments with the Warriors, I believe, up 89-83, Azili fouls LeBron, jumping needlessly uh, towards LeBron on a three-point attempt. LeBron hits all three free throws, then gets a shooting touch, and then comes down and and uh, gets another switch with Azili on him and hits a three right in his face again. Um, you know, I, I will always look at that as as, our, as uh, Steve Kerr's biggest mistake in his career is playing Azili because I thought uh, you know Maurice Spates showed a lot more promise in that game seven as a big. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is another one of those. You, know, you, take, you have to take the good with the bad as a warrior sound with Steve Kerr. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Festus Azili. The thing I'll always remember about this series, in addition to what we've talked about, is the, the anderson Barajau, um, you know, kind of giving the Cavs a taste of his old medicine, flopping relentlessly on every play, and then being an absolute disaster on the Warriors' end. <laughs> yes, uh, he, was, he was not good, and... Uh... Yeah, uh, again, I think the, the reason this series isn't a little bit higher is because I simply just don't think the, the better team won here. I think if you played this series out 100 times, the Warriors probably win the NBA Finals about 98, uh, 98 times out of 100 against the Cavs. And, you know, yeah, you, you factor in that they had to go through much more of a grind in the Conference Finals. The Cavs 
played a six-game series against the Raptors, but again, that Raptors team, they, they didn't take serious. They basically gifted them two games in Toronto. Um, so the Cavs were much fresher heading into that finals. The the Warriors not only were dealing with fatigue issues, but Steph Curry slipped on Monte Yunus's sweat in, uh, in the first round. Uh, and then, yes, you had Bogut's injury, you had Iguodala's back injury, and you had the Draymond Green suspension in a crucial Game 5. Just so many things that I think uh, win in the Cavs' favor. Not to mention, uh, you've got to give LeBron and Kyrie credit. They played arguably the best three-game stretch of each of their careers. Yeah, for sure. Um, it was uh, it was high drama all the way through. And I think I think most Warrior fans, um, if you if you were to uh, you know get them to to speak their true thoughts, I think they would agree that. Uh, you know, we probably should have, the Warriors probably should have lost the 2015 finals, but probably should have won the 2016. So in some ways, essentially the, the injuries and all those other factors got swapped and, you know, everything ended up in balance to some degree. Yeah, I I think it's fascinating to do those what-ifs. Honestly, I believe, you know, if, if we're talking about uh, neither team gets injured, neither team has weird suspensions or anything like that, everybody's healthy. I honestly believe the Warriors win in 2015 and 2016. But I think if if uh, if Durant doesn't come and they just re-sign Harrison Barnes, I think the Cavs win in 2017. Uh, so that that's how I would uh, would go about sprucing the the what ifs. But but certainly um, you know it, it is a fascinating thing to to debate. Uh, did you have anything else from the the 2016 postseason? Yeah. So this didn't make my list, but um, the only other series I. I would mention is uh, I, I, I had a lot of fun in that the Eastern Conference first round series Miami versus Charlotte. Um, you know this is post LeBron Dwayne Wade kind of the last the last year where he was a he played like a star in the playoffs. Um, you got purple shirt guy uh, sitting courtside antagonizing him and getting him to, to go off. But uh, <laughs> the series didn't end up being too consequential, so didn't didn't end up making it. Yeah, and. Uh... Yeah, there were a couple of, um, you know, the, the Heat Raptors series was competitive, the Heat Hornets series was competitive, but yeah, it just felt like both of those were, yes, inconsequential due to the fact that uh, none of them were going to beat the uh, LeBron James-led Cleveland Cavaliers. I will say, um, with that, with that like, series of, of uh, you know, matchups in mind, I, I, I really wish we would have gotten to see that the Heat... Um, Cavs matchup. Um, obviously, Chris Bosh ended up going down with the blood clots, um, but it would. I think it would have been a lot of fun, even though the Cavs probably would have won. Yeah, and even I think that's one of the the things that was disappointing about the original decision from LeBron is that LeBron and Wade were one two in the NBA at the time, and we didn't really get too many opportunities to see them go at it in, at their peak either. So, uh, yeah, we, we didn't get too many LeBron-Wade showdowns, and, and maybe they'd prefer it that way since they are good friends off the court. Uh, but uh, moving on to the, the 2017 postseason, I just have a couple of series here. Uh, the first one that, uh, that I thought of was the, the 2017 Western Conference semifinals between the San Antonio Spurs and the Houston Rockets. This was a really fascinating back-and-forth series. This was the first series where... Uh, you know, the Spurs showed off a, a defensive strategy in terms of guarding Harden where you just concede the mid-range jumper, you go over the top on the screen and drop the big all the way back to the rim and, and take away easy layups. Uh, and, and, and Harden struggled with that at times. But there were other times where the Rockets looked pretty good 
Game 5 was a really tight affair that the Spurs just barely pulled out. And then Game 6, the drama around James Harden having one of the worst postseason games that any star player has ever had. And uh, the, the Spurs, without Kawhi Leonard, were able to blow out the Rockets and win the series. Yeah, that, that game will always stick in my head about this series. Um, I'm not sure if this is this one, but I do remember a scene uh, or a clip of uh, Patty Mills guarding James Harden with his hands behind his his back. Um, yes. <laughs> well, yeah, I think they, you know, the Spurs played the Rockets several years, and that was something that uh, that Greg Popovich always was was uh, reinforcing to his team to keep the hands straight up and and not go for any strips, even if it looked very tempting. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, like it's uh, to some degree, you know, the. Harden had some great games early on, and uh, you know even up to it, look just looking at the box score, he had thirty three point game five. But uh, that game six, you know, without the Spurs, without Kawhi Leonard, with you know Houston facing elimination, that's uh, you know that's another one for the Harden hater camp right there. Right, and um, you know to um, to play devil's advocate and kind of. Uh, come to the defense of Harden there, you know, losing that tight of a game five and typically the winners of game five go on to win the series. That can be very deflating. And uh, again, not to, not to say that uh, his game six performance should have happened, but uh, certainly the mental aspect of the game has to be considered there. And, and again, coming off a really tough loss, uh, you can, you can sort of see why maybe he was, he was feeling like uh, his, his season was, was about over and it ended up being so. Uh, but then uh, also the 2017 NBA Finals, despite this being a, a five-game series, this had to be, in my eyes, the most entertaining five-game series I've ever seen. Yeah, um, you know, I think uh, you hear uh, you hear Zach Lowe and some other people talk about this, but they'll mention, you know, the, the Warriors were kind of on another level, but this was probably the best, uh, the cap, the best, at least offensively the best Cavs team um, in the LeBron run? Yes, they um, they put up, I believe, an 86-point first half in, in Game 4, the, the lone game uh, that, the, that the Cavs were able to pull off in this series, and, and the lone loss that the Warriors had for the entire postseason. They went 16-1. and And even in Game 3, we, we could have had a five or a six- or seven-game series if, if Kevin Durant doesn't hit that crazy shot on the run over LeBron uh, in the closing moments of Game 3. And and that was also right after that sequence that Durant hit the shot was right after Kyle Korver missed a wide-open corner three that would have sealed the game. Yeah, um, that's definitely one he'll, uh, he'll, he'll think about for, for a long time to come. Um, yeah, this is, uh, there, there is such a thing as a close five-game series, and this was definitely uh, you know one thing one you would point to in that respect. Yes, and, and it, it was like it was a trend, uh, especially in in both 2016 and 17, where the Cavs went to went to uh, Oracle in the first two games and and really just tried to figure things out and figure out how they wanted to go about defending the Warriors. But then you know in in 2016 games three through seven, and then in 2017 games three through five, they were all very very competitive contests. Was there anything else out of uh, that that uh, 2017 postseason you felt deserved mentioning? Uh, the only other series I'd shout out is the Eastern Conference semifinals, Boston versus uh, the Wizards. Um, ended up not being too consequential, but uh, 
this was kind of the the peak. I believe this is the peak Wizards, right? This is the best season they had. John Wall um, had his. You could argue. You could argue 2015 when they nearly beat the Atlanta Hawks was also a pretty right. pretty good right. year for them. Yeah, but you know, in the end, uh, neither of these. You know, the 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 Cavs. Uh, this was they ended up beating the Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals with uh, in one of the easier four one or five game series. Yeah, the the thing about that Wizards Celtics series that just frustrated me so much as a neutral observer is the idea that Isaiah Thomas was really the one guy on the Celtics that could beat you on the offensive end, and the Wizards let him go for fifty in uh, in one of the games, and uh, yeah. it was just uh, is it, it was really a poor performance defensively, I thought, from the Wizards, and again a series that despite being very competitive, as you mentioned, uh, just uh, didn't feel like either of those teams stood a chance in the following round. Uh, but uh, moving on to 2018 now, a couple of first-round series I thought were interesting. Uh, first off, the Boston-Milwaukee series, that game one where Chris Middleton hits a 40-foot bomb to to uh, to tie the game and send it to overtime, and that series went back and forth. The Celtics ended up winning in seven games with the home court team taking each contest. And then also the first-round series between the Cavs and the Pacers, uh, where LeBron in games two and five just absolutely went crazy, carrying the Cavs on his back. Again, the, the 2018 playoffs, the first year LeBron didn't have Kyrie as his sidekick, so really had to step it up another level and, and do that much more offensively, and he was able to get the Cavs through that series in seven games. And the number four series I have on my list from the 2018 playoffs is the Golden State Warriors versus the Houston Rockets. Uh, you know, just the... You know, the the Houston Rockets with Chris Paul and James Harden, Clint Capella, P.J. Tucker, Eric Gordon. That was the only team that ever really challenged the Warriors when they were at full strength. Uh, and uh, that was an absolutely fascinating series to watch, despite the fact that it was more a, a defensive, grinded-out sort of affair. Games 4 and 5 were, were very competitive and tightly contested. There were really fun moments one in which uh, Chris Paul hit a, th- a deep three over Steph Curry and then did Steph's shoulder shimmy right in front of him. Uh, there was uh, there was a lot of really fun stuff and and unfortunately the series uh, you know didn't get the ending that we would have wanted because uh, CP3 went down at the end of Game Five. Yeah, so a couple things just on the, on that playoffs. Um, so the the first round Cleveland Indiana series, I actually had number ten. That was my lone uh, first round series that I put in there. Okay. Um, so I had, uh, you know, was, this is probably the like you mentioned. This was the in some ways the mo- one of the the more impressive playoff runs LeBron had. Um, going to seven against Indiana, Bojan Bogdanovic versus LeBron. Um, Remember him hitting some big shots down the stretch. Uh, if you look at the series stats, uh, you know LeBron's averaging, you know, uh, box score wise, thirty four, ten, and essentially eight for the full seven game series. And his and his next best player is Kevin Love, averaging eleven and nine. Um, <laughs> five of the five of the seven games were decided by four points or less. And you have a this is the year that Victor Oladipo really kind of broke out. Yes, but even Oladipo, I think at times, and I don't know if this was fully Oladipo's fault or maybe it was more Nate McMillan's, but the Cavs resorted to double-teaming Oladipo, and it seemed like he really didn't have too many answers. They didn't space the floor properly, and uh, a Cavs team that was really one of the worst defenses in the league that season were able to put up pretty good defensive numbers. 
Yeah, no, certainly. Not saying this was great, great basketball, um, but you know, this was a lot of these series were really close, and uh, it was. Uh, I had a lot of fun watching this series. Yeah, um, the 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 Warriors Rockets series. I had at number four. Uh, what were what were some of your thoughts uh, from that series? You know, again, the Warriors getting challenged. They didn't have Iguodala, uh, but the the Rockets also. Um, you know, Luke Richard and Bob Mute, who was a key piece throughout the season, actually separated his shoulder on the final day of the regular season, and he was never the same. So they they kind of played a similar role for both teams, and and so both teams were beat up a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I had this series number six on my list. Um, for all the reasons you've mentioned, you know, the Warriors, the KD Warriors being pushed for the first time, um, you know, Warriors fans and Rockets fans will kind of play injury tag in this, you know, Bamute goes down, Iguodala goes down when the Warriors were, I think they were leading 2-1, if I remember correctly. Yes. Um, and then, you know, Chris Paul goes down in game five, uh, so a lot of back and forth on that front. Um, I remember in the, the game six and game seven, both in both games, uh, this was the quintessential kind of third quarter Warriors series. Um, Golden State was down double digits in both Game Six and Game Seven at the half, um, and then they managed to turn it around and I think won both games pretty comfortably in the end. Yeah, Game Six was fascinating because James Harden struggled with his offense, you know, throughout the series, but in that first quarter, in Oracle, just lit the Warriors up. And yeah, the, the Rockets were up double digits at the end of one, and you were thinking, oh, is this it? But uh, yeah, as you said, the Warriors, um, you know, led in large part uh, due to the presence of Jordan Bell. I remember Bell being a key piece uh, on the floor during those runs in both games six and seven, probably the, the best stretch in his career. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, that was uh, there were some moments there where you saw the theory of Jordan Bell, and we, we shouldn't get too much into it, but uh, that is uh, that is what the, the upside for him is, right? The, the switchable um, small ball center, kind of. Yeah. Now, uh, was there any was there any other series from 2018 that uh, that you had on your list? No, I think um, I think this uh, this this Eastern Conference Finals we're talking about was kind of the real finals. Um, I mean, the, oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So the uh, the rest was kind of disappointing after you got through this one. Yeah, that's why, you know, the, the idea that um, the Rockets needed to make a change I thought was a little bit questionable, you know, changing and, and trading Chris Paul for Russell Westbrook because, you know, you look at the uh, the last couple of seasons, yeah, they, they lost in seven games in a very tight series. Maybe because Chris Paul got hurt, if he stays healthy, they maybe win the whole thing. And then last year, you know, they... they um, they, at least for half the series, had to compete against the, the full-strength Warriors with Kevin Durant and still were tied 2-2 and in a competitive Game 5 uh, against that team. So this idea that Houston needed to make an upgrade, I was a little bit skeptical about, and I still am. Uh, but, but certainly the, that Houston team will go down as one of the best teams, 66-win team in, in 2018, one of the best teams to never win the title. Uh, yeah. But uh, moving towards this uh, this year, Bert, we're finally to the uh, the, the <laughs> final season here of the decade, and uh, we we had uh, we had a pretty good postseason, I thought, this past year. Uh, the the Western Conference semifinals, both series were interesting. Uh, I just mentioned the the, the Warriors Rockets series, in which 
Uh, Durant went down in Game 5, but uh, Curry was able to, to get them over the finish line and, and get the Warriors a Game 5 win, and then he was brilliant in Game 6, uh, and, and they were able to pull it off. And then also the, the Portland-Denver series, uh, the series was pretty good, not only because you had a very competitive Game 7 in which C.J. McCollum just went nuts, but uh, you also had that four-overtime Game 3, which is one of the greatest postseason games ever. Yeah, certainly. I think we had a we had a overall pretty good um, playoff this past year. So I had, I'm sure you'll talk about this series in a bit, but I had the Raptors Sixers um, in my top ten. I had that uh, number nine. Okay. And, uh, but going back to the Warriors Rockets series, uh, happens again happens. I was at the uh, the game five where Kevin Durant got hurt. Um, that was a uh, that was an all, really fascinating series. Um, if you think about it, the Warriors essentially like it is it is a big deal and it isn't right. They essentially won a game in a quarter without Kevin Durant against the Rockets. And you think about it like any team can kind of beat any other team in the league for one game. Right. Um, but the uh, the interesting point I always I always hear brought up is um, you know if just a thought experiment wise like if the Warriors beat the Rockets in six and Kevin Durant doesn't get hurt. Do the Rockets still blow it up? It's really interesting to think about. And then there was also the controversy in that series with the the James Harden landing area, where it, it appeared, yeah, yeah. at least to me, that he was fouled on multiple occasions by Clay Thompson, but no no calls were made. And you talk about uh, anywhere from six to nine points being taken off the board because of missed calls. Uh, the Rockets very easily could have won Game One on the road. Yeah, and you got the. Um... You got the whole. I think this was uh, also around the time when the, the news leaked that the the Houston front office submitted what was it a video petition or whatever it was where they were calculating the points they lost due to the refs. Which there's no bias in in that report. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that uh, that both of those Western Conference semifinal series were really interesting. Uh, and, and as you said, you, you briefly brought up the, the your number nine, uh, the, the Toronto-Philly series. Of course, Game 7 with the Kawhi shot hitting the rim about 700 times and falling in. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, the, the issue for me was there, was there was quite a few blowouts in that series. Game 1 wasn't particularly close. Kawhi and uh, Siakam shot about 90% from the field in that Game 1. And then, uh, of course, Game 3 was a blowout in the Sixers' favor. Game four ended up, or excuse me, game game four was a close one, which the 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 Raptors pulled out in a must win. Game five was a blowout in in Toronto's favor, and then game six wasn't particularly close. You really just had games uh, two, four, and seven, but still a very a very interesting series and a very interesting series tactically. You know, you had uh, Brett Brown put Joel Embiid on Siakam after Siakam went off in game one. Uh, and then you also had, uh, in Game 3, Brown rely less on Ben Simmons and go to more of a pick-and-roll with Jimmy Butler. Uh, so so a lot of interesting tactical uh, things going on in that series. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think this is, again, kind of a, a little case where the, the, the good games kind of overshadow the, the number of blowouts you mentioned. Um, and, uh, yeah, this is altogether fascinating, especially because we won't see this version of either the Sixers or the Raptors again. Um, one thing I'll just no- I noticed while I was looking over the box scores is uh, Tobias Harris and to a lesser degree Embiid both had some pretty terrible shooting numbers over the course of the series. 
Yeah, Embiid, you know, with uh, with his various illnesses and his his knee issues, just was uh, w- was not particularly good. Other than that game three, although game seven, I think he had a a plus ten plus minus in his forty five minutes, but they lost by two. Absolutely insane. Uh, it's it's funny you had uh, the Toronto Philly series at number nine. I actually had the Toronto Milwaukee series as my number ten. And uh, the the reason, despite you know Toronto Philly going seven games, I actually thought uh, the the Toronto Milwaukee series that went six was more competitive. You know Toronto was was close to being down three games to none in game three. They ended up pulling out. Uh, at home in overtime, the game three win just to stay alive, and then games five and six were both incredibly tight, in which the Raptors made crazy comebacks. Yeah, um, you had the whole the whole Kawhi Giannis um, dynamic going on. Um, if I remember correctly, uh, let me see. Norman Powell had had a resurgent series. It was. Uh, Yeah, and that was really the, the, the big adjustment was putting Kawhi on to Giannis, and that made a big difference. And uh, that game three, the Raptors still hadn't figured out how to score against the Bucks, but they were able to hold them down just enough. Uh, but, but yeah, you had the Fred Van Fleet 7-3 pointer game in game five as well on the road, which uh, you know will go down in Raptors history as one of the key reasons they were able to, to win the whole thing. Yeah, now the the only other series I've considered out of the this most recent postseason was the NBA Finals. Of course, you you had some things with with injury issues, the unfortunate injuries to both Durant and Clay Thompson. Uh, but despite that, you had some really interesting basketball games in this series. Game two was fascinating with the Warriors going on that crazy run to start the third quarter and win that game, uh, and and the Nick Nurse bringing out the box and one defense. Uh, in the in the fourth quarter to nearly allow the Raptors to get back and win that ball game, and then uh, you know you had that that huge run in in Game Five by Kawhi where he he scored on I believe three or four consecutive possessions to give the Raptors a six point lead with with three minutes left, but then Curry and Thompson hitting three threes down the stretch to uh, to help the Warriors extend the series. And Game Six even after Clay went out was still a back-and-forth ball game, and Steph Curry had a three-point shot to send the series to a Game 7. Yeah, it was a, it was a tough tough series on the Warriors' end, but definitely, if you had told me the degree of injuries there would be um, going in, I, I would have expected, uh, I would not have thought the, the series would be as competitive as it was. Um, even going up into Game 6, I was pretty convinced, you know, if the Warriors could, could pull out that game, yeah, I'd give them, you know, 50-50 shot, if not better, to, to win Game 7, and then, you know, everything else is, who knows how much is different from that point on. Right, um, yeah, Game 7, uh, even though the, the home team has a, has a big-time advantage there, uh, you know, when, when, you, when you take it down to just one game, you're right, anything, anything can happen, and, and, you know, speaking to the, the, the bad injury luck of the Warriors, you know, that has continued, even though one of the, the players that uh, has had the bad luck most recently is no longer in a Warriors uniform. 
uh, but you had you know Clay Thompson with the ACL, Durant with the Achilles, and now uh, Demarcus Cousins, the newly uh, signed uh, Los Angeles Laker, tearing his ACL in a workout. Uh, you just got to feel real bad for uh, for all three of those guys. Yeah, and uh, those are those are definitely the the biggest um, you know the, the the biggest names. But you also have uh, I remember Looney had they had a separated collarbone or something to that effect um, amongst amongst other things. Yeah, and playing through he had to play through it for most of the series. I believe he was ruled out at one point, but then was able to tough it out. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you know, a, a lot of those Warriors players showed that they had a lot of heart out there, uh, even in losing fashion. But, uh, Bert, was there anything, uh, was there anything else about, uh, maybe the, uh, the, de- the, the decade of postseason basketball in general that, uh, that, that we should discuss before we, uh, we finish this? Uh, no, I think, uh, the only other thing I wanted to just give a slight shout out to, um, for this playoff we were talking about was just, uh, the... The OKC um, Portland series, not not particularly competitive, but as you alluded to, a great great way to end the series on Dame Lillard's part. Yes, uh, yeah, tying it back to that uh, that shot he hit to to beat the Houston Rockets in 2014. Yes, he's uh, he's hit two of the most iconic shots in NBA playoff history. Well, Bert, uh, thanks so much for uh, for coming on. This was a lot of fun, and uh, hopefully, we'll talk again here in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, you can uh, you can subscribe to the program on iTunes. If you can leave a, uh, a rating and review, that would be greatly appreciated as well. Uh, the show is also now on Spotify. Uh, if you can uh, give the show a follow, again, a rating on there, uh, that, uh, that really helps a lot. If, uh, if you've got any uh, questions or comments or, uh, or ideas for, uh, for future episodes, uh, you can contact me. Uh, on Twitter, at Garrett Bouguet, and also uh, my email is g-bouguet at onu.edu. So uh, feel free to, uh, to uh, give me any of your uh, ideas. I, I love to hear from, uh, from the people listening to the program. And uh, enjoy the next week of the NBA calendar, and uh, have a great rest of your day. Leftovers. Or... The DMV. Number 97. Or. House cleaning. Or. Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Woodwork prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details.